Sermon Smith, a podcast of conversations about the craft of sermon preparation, and my name is John Chandler. Our guest today is Ian DiOrio. Ian is the pastor of Yucaipa Christian Church in Yucaipa, California, near Los Angeles. Uh, Ian brings a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm, as you will pick up on very quickly, and I think he brings a little bit of a new angle from some of our conversations about how much he tries to integrate the role of leading his congregation alongside the role of preaching and conflate those two together. So I hope you'll enjoy this one. Uh, I certainly appreciated much of what Ian had to say. Our sponsor this week is Logos Bible Software. If you go to logos.com slash sermonsmith, you will find a coupon code where you can get 15% off any base package. I use Logos. I use Logos pretty much every day, and I love it for cross-referencing texts and commentaries. I've built up a nice little library in there, and I just find it so helpful for being able to do sermon prep from a coffee shop or from my desk or sitting on the couch in the evening. It's fantastic. That's logos.com slash sermonsmith. As I often say, I would always welcome and appreciate reviews on iTunes. That's one of the way iTunes helps people find podcasts that they might be interested in, and they look at what kind of reviews podcasts are getting and how much activity there is to help find recommendations. So you can go to iTunes.com and do a search for Sermonsmith and leave some comments there. All that said, let's move on to our conversation. Uh, Well, Ian, why don't you give us a little background on Ukaipa Christian Church? Tell us how long you've been there and what the church is like. Yeah, so it's been a good journey for me as a senior pastor of YCC for the last 14 months. Before that, I served as a teaching pastor uh, at a church called Eastside Christian Church in Anaheim, California, oh, yeah. with uh, Gene Apple as the senior pastor there, and great leader, phenomenal mentor. Uh, and so I kind of felt the call to go on to a lead role and was investigating where to go. And I saw at Eastside a church that was really uh, older, had its kind of best days in the past, was kind of remembering the history, uh, get reinvigorated by new leadership and a fresh vision for the future. And I was under Gene's leadership and got to watch that church over a five-year period really transform uh, to become a really uh, engaging, externally focused, evangelistically functional church. And so I, I kind of got the passion to do that myself. So uh, when YCC, Yucaipa Christian Church, called me, I actually was not interested at first. I said no to the job because uh, I thought Yucaipa, you know, it's like I'm, I'm an Orange County L.A. kid. You know, it's kind of like the rural area. And, the Inland uh, Empire, know. right? Is that the Inland Empire? Yeah, exactly. The IE. And it's like it's like the mountainous part of the IE, so it's not necessarily like central. You know, it's kind of a smaller town, and I'm more of a city boy. So actually, after about seven months of interviewing other places and and not finding the right fit, uh, they called me back, and I and I kind of engaged them with a, a fresh vision for the future, and said, so "This is what I would like to be able to bring there if we if we come uh, and serve the church, really kind of take uh, an evangelistic focus, see the church transition to really equip the next generation." And so that's really what we've been doing for the last 14 months. Um, you know, it was church change is difficult. And I mean, there's a whole conversation in podcasts we can have about the dynamics of changing culture and what are the best ways to do that. Uh, I would say that we've had a lot of some gains and some difficulties this year. And one level, it's been a really healthy year evangelistically. We've baptized 220 people in the last 11 months. Uh, we've seen a lot of fruit, a lot of lives change. The church has grown by hundreds and hundreds of people over the last year. But at the same time, a lot of people have transitioned out, choosing to kind of be part of a, an older 
kind of traditional yeah. church, which the church really was before. It was really traditional bells, choirs, things like that. And not that those are the most important things, but we've made some cultural transitions. And so it's been an, it's a new church, a new invigoration, a new reinvigoration of mission. And it's been exciting to lead that uh, process. So we're still learning, still growing, still figuring it out, but it's been a good 14 month journey. Well, let me, so let me backtrack a little bit then. Prior to that, when you were at Eastside as a teaching pastor, was that your primary role was just teaching or did you? No, I did teaching and teaching and college ministry. And so I was the only other teacher on staff that would speak uh, frequently. And then I oversaw, I launched the college ministry called Ethos, and we saw hundreds of students come in through that. It was real, real fun ministry there. And then prior to Eastside, I was a teaching pastor at Rock Harbor Church in Costa Mesa. Oh, yeah, which yeah. Is a, yeah, so uh, it spent a couple of years there. It was a great, great journey. Okay. Did you, uh, uh, we interviewed Steve Carter way back when, too. Did you and yeah, Steve overlap Steve's, there? Yeah, Steve, Steve actually is a friend of mine, and, and he followed me as I left uh, Rock I Harbor. Gotcha. So, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, great. Um, I, the reason I asked that is I was just curious to hear, and I'm sure this will come out in the conversation. Yeah. But just curious to hear how much the process of preparing a sermon alongside the role of leading a church through change shifted as you went from teaching. But it sounds like you were already had, you had the same experience at Eastside where you were leading a ministry alongside preparing the teaching. So. Yeah, I think, I think the one thing that <clears throat> shifted for me, but Eastside really prepared me well for that was you know, there's a difference. The way I kind of think about preaching is like preaching's the wind, but systems and structure are the sails. So preaching can be the thing that kind of moves people and inspires people. And if you're a great preacher, you're going to get hearts moving in the right direction. I think where most churches fail in a change process is they get the church hype with vision and enthusiasm from preaching, but then they don't do the detailed analysis of structure and the reorientation of system. And so the preaching kind of can get people excited, but if you don't change those internal aspects of how things function and move, it really can get um, more difficult the more vision you preach because then the less impact you're having. So the way I think in the, in the context I learned at Eastside was how do you strategically use preaching, not just to give information, but to really be a transformation initiative for the change in the church. So how do you use every single sermon to kind of buy you more um, impact than just, well, that was a really good message for my personal spiritual development. How does every message it kind of carry with it the DNA of the vision that the church is changing to become? Yeah. Well, so I was just about to lead into a question, which you just kind of answered. But, okay. But this will allow, no, that's great. But this will allow you even to stretch that out a little bit more, which is I always like to ask, what is the role of preaching in the life of your congregation? So you started to expand yeah. on that. But I mean, if you want to say any more about that, go ahead. Yeah, I think I think in the context I'm at now, I think it's. It, there's definitely a group of people that have more of a traditional understanding of kind of the pulpit ministry that, you know, it's kind of the moment that you feed the flock uh, and right. you kind of give the spiritual content. And I, I don't dismiss that. I think obviously good sermons can't be all just about future vision where we're moving to. So I think it's a delicate balance between kind of information and transformation between kind of like biblical content, but also making the application to your personal vision. So I think we're uh, preachers are often really good. And making really personal application, but I think where I think some struggle is how do we make corporate application for the the long vision of the church? And so for me, leading a change process, everything has to lead to that transformation of the church. Because if you're only giving content and then you start changing things without giving people a vision for the change or a framework for the change, you'll find that it works against you, even if you're preaching well 
to feed the souls and feed the flock or so to speak. So I think you have to have a delicate balance of, okay, I'm studying the scripture. We're doing a series on James or we're doing a series on Romans or we're doing a topical series on, you know, we're doing one called me, myself and me, myself, and I, you know, kind of like an identity series. But how do I frame those topics? How do I frame that series in a way that helps us move our strategic vision forward and, and working at Eastside, watching Gene do that. I think he's kind of the penultimate master of using preaching as not only a motivation for people's spiritual growth, but also as a vehicle to move the church forward in vision. Yeah. All right. Well, that being said, then this will lead right into another question, which is as you, as you look ahead or, uh, you know, you think about somewhat where the church needs to go or where you hope that the church will go, but also, you know, dealing with individuals, like how far in advance do you work through upcoming sermons, like series that you're going to be doing and how do you determine what those will be? Yeah. So I, I'm a big believer in collaboration. And I think, you know, the, the sermon, uh, maybe is executed by one voice, but it shouldn't be framed by one voice. And I think, especially if you have a vision orientation with your preaching, which means you're having to carry the, the total vision of every staff, every department, uh, you know, the overall big wins that we're trying to achieve as a church. So for me, I actually do it collaboratively. So I work, I try to get a four month, <coughs> excuse me, four month preaching calendar ahead of time. Mm-hmm. But I don't go up to the mountain and, you know, and, and pray and get the tablets and bring it back to my staff. What I'll do is I'll meet with some of the key leaders in our youth ministry who are on staff, some people who are working with college students, and even at times seniors, and I'll kind of give a pitch to them. Hey, this is the format trajectory that I'm looking at. And then we try to align that with our calendar. So if I'm going ahead independently and preaching content, you know, and somebody says, oh, that sermon series that you're wanting to do this month, you know, three months from now, that's going to really help us in terms of supporting our kids getting invested in camp or help us recruit volunteers, right? So for me, I think I try to do it really collaboratively, have an open document. That's an open source document for people to look at in terms of the sermons that are coming up. But I try to do four months ahead of time. And we typically do, even if we do like an exegetical expository book by book uh, deal, which we try to wrap it in kind of like a a topical framework. So Mm -hmm. it kind of moves vision forward. So um, and, and we try to do that about four months ahead of time. It's like, so we're going into the Sermon on the Mount this summer. Oh yeah, we are too. <laughs> but we're not <laughs> yet. Are you? Are you? Are yeah, we are. So we're calling it Summer on the Mount, right? Because okay. we're trying to frame it, we're, what we're a mountain town. So uh, it's not only like the content, but it's like what's the summer going to look like at YCC? So it's Summer on the Mount, and the sermon series is one part of the total package of our, you know, family program for investing in kids spiritually, our camps for our high school students and junior hires and elementary. All of it kind of flows out of that centralized kind of branding. Yeah. Okay. And so it it looks like I mean I was looking back at some of your sermons and you know your at least the titles and listened to a little bit here and there. Looks like you preach maybe an average of three times a month. Is that safe to say? That's right. Yeah. And then so as you incorporate other people, do they work into the same series as well, or do you just give them like a freestanding? You know, it depends. Typically, I try to pull people in uh, to work within the framework that we're doing, unless it's kind of a one-off type weekend, you know, if it's a, a holiday weekend or something like that. And because I'm working collaboratively in the process of developing the content, you know, it's really easy to kind of hand that off because people have processed on the idea level with us for the last couple of weeks. And usually the people who are going to speak for me are people who have been through that process. I mean, yeah. if they're internal, but if they're external, uh, you know, I typically will give people if like for the summer on the Mount series, I have three guest speakers coming, but I've asked them to work within our structure. I've asked them. So I've assigned them a passage. 
they've agreed to come and, and to share on those specific passages and to kind of honor our series. So it's, it's really a both and. Um, some like last summer, I just had kind of like a guest speaker lineup and invited mm-hmm. people to come and share, share what was ever on their heart and kind of give a message that was a one off. But this year it's a little bit more structured because of our total branding. So yeah, it could be different. And do you, so you, it sounds like you do both some topical and some exegetical. Do you follow any sort of rhythm back and forth on how you move in and out of those or how you plan all that? Or is it just what you feel like needs to be next? Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's a specific method to the madness. I think, uh, the summer is one of those times for me in Ukaipa specifically. You know, we're a town that we drop attendance-wise a heavy percentage in the summer. You know, in Orange County, that I didn't experience that because it's <laughs> like where are you going to go vacation other than Orange County, right? So people, are, you know, pay a lot of money to live there. So when summer hit, it's like we're just going to the beach on the weekends. Yeah. The town I'm in right now, it's kind of a mass exodus once school's over. People are getting their campers or traveling around, and you you, you kind of slow to a rhythm. So I try to look at summer not as a time to really hype a lot of vision to really kind of get us, you know, I try to late that to early fall. So summer is more of a time to really get deep in a book. So like we'll study like the Sermon on the Mount. So it's not necessarily a book, but we're going to do more of an expository kind of uh, six, seven week series through the Sermon on the Mount and try to wrap some vision into it. But I try to make my topical series really align with some of our strategic initiatives. So like in the fall, we're doing a series like based on some content out of Tim Harlow's church called Life on Mission. Hmm. And it's just real kind of like a missional living uh, kind of 40-day kind of campaign. So we're going to really align everything, kids, ministry, small groups, all with that in the fall. Uh, and so I, I guess it's really about what's the main vision items that kind of carry the teaching for me, you know, because I, I, I've learned to filter filter my teaching through vision. It's not to say that we don't want to have exegetical studies, but even when we do have an expository series, like we try to wrap it in the vision. So I, I don't have necessarily a method to a madness on that. Yeah. And it and I would say it's part of that collaboration. Um, we have a, other ways, though, for people to study like full books of the Bible. We have an actual partner institute with a university on campus. Every Monday night, we offer certificate programs. So if people, you know, we kind of go, you know, the weekend services is a, is a big door. And so we don't want people yeah, yeah. coming in and to be stuck in Leviticus 18 for 20 weeks. You know, not not to dishonor Leviticus 18, but <laughs> we want to have the freedom to, to be able to speak to secular people, searching people, spiritually oriented people. At the same time, have other venues to really deepen the faith and give people that kind of like deep theology. So I try to I try to go back and forth and still exploring what that looks like. Right, right. Okay. Well, so that all that being said, why don't you just let's just break it down and walk us through, you know, take any given sermon. And again, when you're doing topical versus an exegetical, you know, Sermon on the Mount, this might vary a little bit, but maybe take a sermon that you're working on right now or your most recent one and just walk us through what your timeline looks like of how you put yeah. all that together. Yeah. So uh, I'll go I'll, like our selfie series, I think is a really good example of that because, uh, Though it's a topical series, you know, it's a, it's a series on identity. It's really a three week series based on Genesis one, two, and three. So I'm going to, the first week is, you know, a selfie in the mirror. What's it mean to be made in the image of God? And, you know, from like the Hebraic tradition, to be made in the image of God is literally to mirror back to God the image that he's placed upon human beings. And mm-hmm. so it's kind of exegetical and topical at the same time. So I'll give you an analogy on that one. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm more of a, I'm a high kind of high creative. So I think of things in terms of visual. I, I'm going to predict right now you're a verbal processor. I'm a I, verbal processor. I just met you, but I'm just going to say that. 
<laughs> yeah, my team, my team, my team has to give me a lot of grace on that one. I'm a high verbal, a high verbal. Everything falls off after that. So I, I'm I'm high verbal, but I'm also high. Like I think in terms of image. Yeah. So for instance, when I when I write my sermons, the way I do my sermons is uh, I do kind of like a PowerPoint TED approach where I use a lot of graphic images, you know, one line kind of sub points, you know, to kind of give main points. So I'll actually do a PowerPoint before I write my message. Huh. And my, my PowerPoint com- becomes for me kind of like my guide signpost for where I want the, the message to go. And then once I kind of have like 10 or 12 sides kind of put out in front of me. So for instance, with the selfie series, I know that I'm going to draw some quotes from like celebrities. Like there's this great quote from Holly Berry on where she says that, you know, being thought of as a beautiful woman has brought me nothing but pain and hardship in my life. It doesn't bring me anything beautiful or wonderful. Mm. So I, I had this graphic of her quote, right? So for me, I get all those in line. Where would I want to use that point? And then I kind of backtrack and I work through the text and try to make the text really help support those main kind of points of creativity. Because I think of an image first. And I think a lot of people start with the text. I mean, I start with the text in the sense I know what text I'm going to exegete. Sure. But I've read the text over and over again. And then I try to translate it in terms of image and the flow of the message. And then I go back and work on my language. So really, that starts for me. I, I know the text about four months ahead of time because when we plan out series, we yeah. don't just plan out topics. We plan out text with it. <clears throat> so I, I supply my team with a big picture, what I call like a big main point for every sermon. You have like a document so main, that outlines that? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I have a document that outlines that, and the document basically has what's the main point in one line that I'm trying to make. So you know, I try to sum that up. What's the obvious text that we're going to be working thr- from? And then when I was at Rock, Rock Harbor, we had four values for preaching that Mike Erie, I'm sure you know who Mike is, pastor of E.V. Free Fullerton, written a few books. And I, these, these principles have really gone through the kind of the final evaluation of any one of my texts. And basically the four principles or values for a sermon at Rock Harbor was these. It was that every sermon needs to be obviously through the scripture. <laughs> so it has to be a text-oriented approach. So we don't... I, I, I typically like to stick with one text. Mm-hmm. I'll cherry pick once in a while if I'm doing like a vision message or something like that. But I like to typically walk through one text. So it has to be through the scripture. Secondly, it has to be through your life. You know, don't just lob ideas on me, but try to show me how this principle, this word affects you. Why, you know, if you want this to wreck me and inspire me, first tell me how it wrecks and inspires you, right? So yeah. through the scriptures, through your life, clear path. And that's where the pictures help me because when I line out my pictures, because I'm I'm an image-oriented leader, it helps me know the path I'm going on and how to align my scriptures relative to that path to make the greatest point. So, you know, through the scriptures, through my life, clear path, and fourthly, clear response. What do you want me to do? (laughs) So, you know, don't just just give me ideas, but give me application. So I kind of start first. I know the text that's going to be coming. I work through the text, but I try to put the text in an image-oriented outline where I know here are the graphics, the images, the main points I'm going to use. Then I revisit it, and at the by Thursday or Friday, what I try to do is look on that outline and write a few pages of what language I'm going to use to flow through the text and flow through that outline and flow through those pictures in a really kind of specific, clear way through the four values that I just shared with you. Right. So that's kind of like my process. 
Yeah. And then I share it with my team and have them speak into it. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I know, it, I know that no week is probably the same as much as we would like it yeah. to be, but I wish it was. Yeah. So, but roughly speaking, like at what point in the week are you trying to put together that initial PowerPoint? Well, I, I'm, I'm, I try to do that earlier on. So I try to get two weeks ahead of time. Okay. Like that's, that's my, that's my aim to be able to do. And as, it, as you mentioned, I mean, pastors have great intentions, but you know, the, the, the urgent can overtake you. And obviously that's the case, but I, and minimally I like to have worked through the passages for the next two weeks Yeah, and have a deep sense, a, a relative outline. And then that, then I go early on. So for, for me, Monday, actually, I start in Monday with my sermon for the next week. Okay. Uh, usually I'm a week ahead in terms of some of the study, some of the kind of notes that I want to make main points, you know? So like with my selfie series with, my selfie in the mirror. Yeah, I did all this work on what's it mean to be made on the image of God. But then I start looking for graphics and, and illustrations that are going to help me paint that picture profoundly. So yeah. usually that starts on Monday. Um, and then I try to have, I try to have my sermon done to my assistant by Thursday so that she could have it finally kind of oriented so I can get the PDF of the, the PowerPoint back by Friday. And then on Saturday, I try to, I, first thing in the morning, I kind of go over it once again. And then, then I'm kind of off and running by Sunday. So yeah. for me, it, I don't, I, I'm more of kind of a, I, I know some guys do a couple hours every day and then they kind of do their other thing. I'm, I typically, my approach is I just kind of get it all done. I kind of spend a day or two, you know, to really kind of knock it out, frame it out because I want to spend most of my time focusing on how I'm going to deliver it. Yeah. And I, and I, and I think for me, the content kind of comes easily. I think the more, like, I'm not saying I've been through so many school, you know, so much schooling, but the more you've been in the Bible, you've done a lot of schooling. It's not like you have to start at ground zero every time for exegesis. I yeah, think you, yeah. you kind of you you know where to go, you know which books to go to, you know where to search. So I think for me, it's really the like the flow that I try to get really precise. I don't use notes when I speak, mm -hmm. so all I have up there is really nothing and then there's a tv in front of me powerpoint <laughs> yeah powerpoint so i i just kind of flow so even though lots of guys do manuscript you know gene's a manuscript preacher other pastors are great manuscript preachers for me i'm pretty good as a verbal processor pretty good extemporaneously but i need those images and i need the structure i need to know where i'm going and once i have that assessed uh, so usually i try to get that done within the first few days i like to have my powerpoint done though within like the first two days of the week so that by thursday and friday I, i'm I know what I'm doing, and I'm really focusing on the delivery part of it. So, can I backtrack? I mean, I'll just I'll just kind of yeah. keep honing in on parts and trying to pull them apart with you here. Um, totally. So, go back backtrack to the week before. You know, you talked about that study part, and, yeah. and and I would imagine, you know, from what you're describing and so many conversations I've had, is what happens is you do that study part as it gets in your head, and then as you're going through the following few days and all that things just come to you. You'll see them and you'll go, Oh, that'll That's match right. right up with what, I, you know, so that you can put them in. So all that to say backtrack to that study part. What is that particular part of it? Especially being a verbal processor. I, I imagine you're not a lock yourself in your study for four hours kind of guy. So what yeah, is your, you what does your study process look like? You know, for me, I, you know, I love to read and I love to, to, to get that time, but I, I always have to come out of the cave and process the insights with people, obviously as a verbal processor. So one of the things I'll do is I'll try to get a good amount of exegesis done independently. So like I'm studying Genesis two right now, okay. right? So I'm like, I'm working through that text, but I'm trying to really get 
the the overall main points I'm trying to make from the text from my study of it. But the way that I kind of process it honestly is in community. So like I'll have a meeting with two or three of my staff members and ask them to give me some other readings too. I have a teaching kind of team that yeah. does some research for me. So I'll kind of task people to ask them to kind of, Hey, could you go look this up or could you, you know, make a print of page 127 in that book and kind of read that and bring me some outlines. Um, I, I typically don't have a, a rigorous daily today study routine. I'm just kind of constantly studying and I tried like, so I'm reading a bunch of books from the Sermon on the Mount right now. So I guess I'm not necessarily studying passage by passage in, in kind of like a, a very rigorous way, but I'm trying to get it in me and soak my consciousness with it. I also listen to a lot of lectures, listen to a lot of like courses and open hmm. courses on, on, on things as well. Cause I'm auditory as well. So I'm always part of my study is not just only reading, but it's absorbing other teachers, other content. Like what courses. kinds of things are you talking about? Like iTunes, you, well, or like what do you iTunes, mean? I, yeah, iTunes, you Coursera MOOCs. You know, there's so much great content out there or, you know, I'm like, I think, I think Google has really helped preachers. Obviously, you know, there's probably issues with Google, but I think you could be a specific, like for me, I Googled Walter Brueggemann, Genesis chapter two, verses one through 30, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to see, okay, what's out there on that? Maybe there's somebody who's already in an exegesis paper using Brueggemann as a source that's going to bring some more insight to me than I would have been able to get just from reading that source itself. Or maybe there's somebody who's worked him into a, a sermon already and they kind of mine the gold for me from that point already. So I try to, I try to be as faithful as I can, uh, in terms of absorbing from a lot of different angles. Uh, so I'm not just kind of one voice responding to one voice. So it, it's really a holistic process to me. I feel like kind of like with me, I'm always trying to learn, always trying to be a, a, aware of what's going on in terms of what I'm going to be preaching and studying. But it's not necessarily like a day, four hours I'm in my study. Right. It, I, I, uh, it's really at nighttime, I'm on the internet, you know, daily, I'm on my phone. I'm just, it's a constant kind of deal. I guess I'm a millennial in that way. Sure, sure. So, <laughs> you so you've created like this, cloud of concepts. Can I call it that? Because I, I kind of yeah. think the same way. So as you're doing all this reading and all this studying, so then when it comes time to settle in and talk about Genesis 2 or Matthew 5, yes. how do you access that cloud? Are, are you pretty deliberate about taking notes somehow? Or is it, do you just have a pretty decent memory? How do you access all of that? I mean, you know, uh, I'll ask my wife if I have a good memory or not. I, you know, hopefully I do. I think, I, I think for me, um, I tend to think in terms of picture. And so, and I, I'm pretty good verbally. I grew up as a child actor. And so I, I learned how to memorize scripts my whole life. Yeah. Uh, and so there's a part of me that I think that part of my mind of con- kind of memory and even almost like helpful improvisation. So it's not that I'm not studied or I'm not informed. But it's that studied and informed self can also at times become extemporaneous in the moment without losing, I think, the application of the scripture. But one of the things I do is when I do my outline, that helps me kind of solidify the study, the creativity, and the application. So on Fridays, when I have my PowerPoint back, I always cross-reference it again with what I've studied. You know, okay, so am I making this point here well? Uh, ha- okay, I'm, I'm making I'm, I'm making a comment on the Greek word. Like, for instance, when I, t- I taught on the prod- prodigal son, you know, I, I thought about how do I talk about the word splak- splaknon, you know, splaknitsamai, yeah, yeah. this, word, this word bowels, you know. What's a good way to talk about that, <laughs> you know? And so uh, I had a bottle of Pepto-Bismol with me on stage, right? Like, I, 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 you know, I said, 
how many of you know what it's like to, to drink some of the, this pink stuff, right? <laughs> Everyone knew right. what it was like to drink pink stuff. But the image, the illustration came out of my exegesis, right? What's splachnitomite? It's the pain in the bowels. It's this deepest physical response that comes out of a moment of compassion. And I said, you know, it's not just a virus that makes your stomach ache. And so I went from showing the Pepto-Bismol to showing pictures of kids with flies in their eyes and Biafra and parts of Africa. I said, isn't it amazing? We have this response to that. And I said, you know what's, then I brought in a scientific insight. I said, you know what's fascinating about human beings? We have something that very few animals have or people who, people, we have a mirrored neuron. The mirrored neuron is that thing that when I see somebody hungry, I can feel what it's like to be hungry. When I see somebody crying, you know, it can make me shed a tear. And I said, that's what Jesus is getting at here. Hmm. That, that God is like that. God feels our deepest pain. When, when we hurt, God hurts. God, has compassion in the deepest profound way. So I try to try to let the exegesis give me the content, bring me the word study. But I think um, I'm more interested in as a pastor, not necessarily in the information, you know, how, how, do, how do people go away thinking oh, I'm smart and I, I did my seminary education so they know <laughs> I know my exegesis. Right. But I really think good sermons and Jesus was the perfect example of this, right? Like he was able to take the history of Israel and put it in the metaphors of like agriculture and seed and harvest and you know, tombs and things like that. I think that's where I find most of my exegesis actually coming to life, not necessarily in like the, the drawing out from the text, the insight. I think that's, you can do that with a commentary. I think it's the, the application of the faithful application of that insight in a way that, that brings the scripture to bear and into life in the life of the congregation. So I spent a lot more energy focusing on that. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's because the, the exegesis, you know, I think you can get that in the page of a commentary. You read three commentaries, it's not going to take you 10 hours to do that. I mean, if you're working through the Greek and the Hebrew yourself, I understand that every week, and I probably should, but I, I, I don't as often as I can. But the tools are helpful, and they make it a little quicker. But for me, it's it, the part that I want to focus on is really how does that become a transformational piece in, yeah. in the life of our people? Uh, so you you talked earlier about the, the four clarities that I think yeah, you yeah. said Mike Airy originally brought to them, which yeah. – if you're still in touch with him, I've tried to get him on this podcast a couple times. He, we peter out on email exchanges. <laughs> so okay, well, yeah, I can I can help with that. In fact, uh, one of my mentees, a guy who lived with me and I've I've kind of mentored and supported, is now one of their teaching pastors. Mike hired him. Gotcha. And and well, so uh, I'm determined so, we'll get him at some point. But all okay, to say, well, I'll, I'll I'll help with that, and I can help with other people too. You know, yeah. I, I got lots of friends. Yeah, Steve Carter put me in touch with him, but it's kind of petered out. But anyway, so. You you talk about those four like so I assume those are a filter you try to run every sermon through. At what yes. at what part in the process do you do that? Is that as you're doing the PowerPoint or on Friday? Do you run them back through that? Are you deliberate about that yeah. or just kind of ingrained? For me, by the time I have my PDF back or the PowerPoint back, I, I get an image. <clears throat> That's when I run through it, and it's not infrequent that I have to change some things because of it not lining up to one of those four pillars of value. So, for instance, for most of the time, it's really the it's either the clear response or through my life. I think it's easy for pastors, especially when we love the Bible and we love communicating the Bible to people. I think it's harder to show how what you're communicating is so disruptive for you spiritually that you had to tell the congregation this today, that this is so powerful, you know. And like, and what's what's without being um, self self affirming or using yourself as the savior analogy every time. But how do you, in some ways, show a vulnerability in your preaching that this text is over you as well? You know, it's not like 
you're over it and I'm lobbying on the things that you have to do. So for me, if I don't find by Friday, if I've done all my exegesis, if I have all my PowerPoint ordered and I want where I want it, but if I don't have a powerful story or some type of allusion to how this matters for me, and it might just be that statement. It might be, and I'm going to tell you now why this matters for me or why this, this goes, this is, this is how this impacts my life. I find that that's the area that I can kind of miss, you know, Mm -hmm. I I can kind of think through the lens of reception rather than not through the lens of, um, you know, the clear, clear through my life piece. Also, I think another piece that I think a lot of pastors struggle with, and I think I have to be very focused on because I'll struggle with it too, is clear response, you know, where we're just not tossing ideas on people and then kind of waiting for them to kind of shuffle and put them in their pockets. But I think really good communicators, um, there's no ambiguity when you leave knowing what I wanted from that person. Yeah. So I think sometimes I'll, it depends on the passage. Cause say like, for instance, like studying Genesis one, two, and three, I've really enjoyed it. I've really dug deep and, uh, you know, been listening to lectures by Jewish rabbis and trying to get as much as I can. Well, I dig that stuff, but the mom who's a single mom trying to work her job and raise her kid who's struggling with, you know, drug addiction. Yeah. Yeah. It, doesn't need to know the bones of my exegesis, but she needs to know how does this like impact my life and what do you want me to do with it? And sometimes I, I find that if the message, if people go away from the message going away going, man, wow, Ian's a really great communicator. Or, oh man, that was such a deep point of exegesis. Like that, 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 ooh, I, you know, I was really fed there, but they don't know what to do and there's no personal application and there's no like, this, this is now how I shall live. I think we, we do a disservice. One of my professors called it spiritual malpractice because <clears throat> when you, yeah. you know, if, when you get, when you go to a doctor and you, you're sick and not saying everybody in our congregation is sick, but we're trying to help people get healthy. So the metaphor maybe fails, but when you go to a doctor and they prescribe you medication, when you go to the pharmacist, they don't just give you the medication, do they? They'd explain to you what to take, how to take it, right. when to take it, what not to take with it. Don't take it with food. Don't take it after midnight. Don't drink and take it. What are they doing there? They're saying the doctor gave you the analysis. He's giving you the prescription, but now we're even going to give you the limitations and like the specifics on how to take it, when to take it, and which ways not to do it. I think sermons need to be like that too. Mm, yeah. And so where I, where it's like, <clears throat> we, we do the, we do the doctor analysis and we give the great wisdom, but we also take time to read the label of the, the bottle that we're prescribing them. And giving them the specific ways to walk through that. See, I always just want to like say, get on with it when the when they want to call totally. a pharmacist over. But yeah, you're right. That makes a lot of sense. That's a good well, analogy. Think, right. Well, I think part of it is, as pastors and leaders, we know what we want people to do. <laughs> like, right, right. Right. Like, and we think we're so great at getting people inspired, and and you know, wow, like, you know, I've gone away going from many messages. I'm sure you have too, going. Man, I was so clear. I, I illustrated what I wanted everybody to do, and everybody didn't have any idea what I wanted them to do. <laughs> right? That's never happened to me. I don't know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Only, I think, I mean, if I were to name names, I think pastors that are really good at that. I think like Andy Stanley, I think is a good pastor who does that really well. Yeah. But I think you can, you can know, like, okay, you know, going after a message, like, this is what we, we're going to do. Three things you're going to do this week. And I think, um, that's sometimes the hardest. Because it forces you to reevaluate your exegesis, forces you to reevaluate your illustrations, not in terms of how good they are or how emotional they are or even how you know deeply exegetical they are, but how usable are they? Yeah. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, that's good stuff. I'm like jotting down notes even for my own to think about. Um, yeah. How do you 
I'm going to take a take a total turn here because you described and this is a question that comes up sometimes. And I, I feel like you'll be one who will be ready to address this more than some others. But, you know, you had a chance to fill in and learn teaching under Gene Apple and you had a chance to be, a, you know, on the teaching team at Rock Harbor. And you talked a little bit about your own teaching team and all that. So can you talk a little bit about what the process looks like for you as you're trying to also develop other people with the gift of preaching? Yeah, I, I think I would say the first thing is that you have to be intentional about doing it. And most preachers, like most athletes, you know, if you, know you go to a Babe Ruth, you know, how do you hit those home runs? I don't know. I just swing the bat. Right. Like, and so you, you, some people just know how to swing the bat in a way that creates home runs. And some people got to learn how to swing the bat better. And I think what's hard in development is that people always want to replicate you in, in development. Yeah. And they, you, they become the standard. They become the gold standard, even if unintentionally, right? Like, even if you're not trying to get those people to be like you. I mean, I remember, um, Rob Bell was like, you know, when I was in college, was like the the preacher, right? Like, he, you know, he's doing exegesis from Leviticus, and like, yeah, yeah. it was when he really went through the Bible back in the day. Everyone I knew started sounding like Rob Bell, like they, you know, they would just say and say a cod, you know, like it would just became, yeah, yeah. This, and I probably did too, right? Like it was like, and I think I think the closer you are to somebody, the easier it is to kind of just copy and not really cultivate your own style. So I think it's kind of the first rule. I think is you can give people the principles, you can give people values, but the great way of development is really helping people find their own voice right. and helping them develop what does it mean for them to be a great communicator. And so like I'm a dynamic person. I know that like I'm, I'm kind of big and Italian and like whatever. I get that about me. Child actor. One of my, you're right. Yeah. One of my favorite preachers is Tim Keller. Like, you know, who's not, <laughs> you know, he's professorial and, you know, content driven and very informational and and i and i i love it i mean i i get spiritually nourished from his sermons i couldn't preach one like that without like putting my hands in my pockets or being tied to a chair because i'm different right so i think when people start when the first i think that's the first priorities when you start to develop people you have to first have the commitment to them to help them gain their own voice and i think secondly the one thing that you need to do is trial by fire so I got, I can't even, I wasn't raised in a Christian upbringing. You know, I come from a agnostic, new agey, secular past, you know. Um, so when I came to know Jesus, it was like, I didn't even know who Billy Graham was. I had no idea who the, hmm. po- I mean, it was just a total new learning curve for me. Yeah. But I was 21 and I was 24 speaking in 5,000 people at Rock Harbor. I mean, so my learning curve went from 21 being a non-believer to 24, <laughs> but let it's me pretty drastic. The, pretty <laughs> drastic and pretty painful and, and pretty hard. And, and it was a steep learning curve. But I think that's – I've come to see that's better than kind of the let's wait for the person to mature. Let's wait for them to get it right. Let's make, wait for them to give 10 practice sermons to the, to the real people who are going to approve them before they can go public to the congregation. I think if you cultivate the congregation as a learning environment about raising up next-generation leaders – I think you can give people a 24-year-old kid to speak in front of a few thousand people who's going to fail probably half of the sermon because he'll grow right. far quicker. She'll grow far quicker in that type of environment than just sitting in front of a camera 
and then meeting with them in a room on a TV set to watch their sermon. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. I think we got we got to like there's a difference between practicing how to be a great baseball player at the batting cages versus jumping right into the minor leagues or jumping right into a team. Yeah. So I think for me, development has to be you're doing it versus you're learning how to do it. They need to be kind of like two pedals on the bicycle. And I think where I think some people get, I think the Calvary Chapel movement, I mean, uh, a friend and mentor of mine is Todd Hunter, who was the head of the Vineyard Church, yeah. great leader, yeah. great person. Um, Todd's like, he's like, Calvary Chapel was like, oh, you believe in Jesus and you have a Bible? You know a guy who has a guitar? Cool, go start a church, right? right. Like, it was like, <laughs> Now, I don't want to be critical of that, but surely what that did for those guys was it caused them to grow at a faster pitch because it's not like you're practicing, uh, you know, for the big game 10 years from now. You're practicing for the big game Sunday. Yeah. And so I would say the first thing for developing leaders is you need content and context for them to express in front of people and then have an accountability to that process both from you as their developer, but also from the feedback from the congregation. And I think that's part of the process that helps people lead. If not, they're just, they're learning in a, like you went to school. I took a preaching class. Turned out my father-in-law now was my preaching professor, right. you know? So uh, we preach and I like do a message and we go to his office and like watch it, him and I. Hmm. And I preach the sermon in front of a class from five people. Yeah. I think that that's not the best way to develop young leaders. And I think really gifted young leaders will get tired of that and we'll want to jump into so i think it risk put them in your youth ministry put them in your high school ministry put in front of a bunch of younger kids get people moving in areas and then have really strategic follow-up but also have it based on a clear value system that you're trying to get them to to hit so i think one of the things it's not that you just don't like it or you like it or you know that was a funny illustration or or not but i think it's it's like Hey, what's the values we have as a church? So for me, if I equipping teachers, I have those four values I gained right. from Rock Harbor. So that becomes like a filter for me to evaluate preachers. And I think most people kind of don't really have a formalized system like that. So it becomes like, you know, oh, I like it. You know, and churches are great for saying, you know, we're like Facebook. I like it. I don't like it. But there's a lot more to development than like and don't like. There's there's deeper strategic aspects of that. So I think I, I try to do that. I, secondly, I. We're not doing this right now, but we're trying to do this soon. Yeah. Where uh, I and I, I led this at Rock Harbor with Mike Erie. It was called Havura, and it was a community of preachers where we met once a month and we preached to each other and we gave immediate on-site feedback um, to to the like like even as people were going. So they would get in <laughs> and we'd have a copy of their message and they'd get into their first point. We'd be like, "Okay, Tio, like right now you ru- you rushed like." There was no bridge to where you're going. Help me bridge that point, bridge mm. that idea for me. And then, like, we would give constant feedback. Those are great things, you know. I also think it's good to help people that you're trying to develop write your sermons with you. I think that's kind of like yeah, yeah. a really easy thing to do. Uh, like, and so if you if I have a young guy that I'm trying to develop, I'll work him with my process. So I'll have him come in with me and see how I process, or have her come in and see how I process, and then. So, so they they can see how how it goes. You know what I mean? I think yeah. most people don't know where to start when they start. I surely didn't. But I sat down with a pastor who walked me through his process. Very yeah. different process than I use right now. But at least it gave me a, 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 a place to start. Well, that's the beautiful thing about the four uh, you know values that you talk about is no matter what somebody's voice is or style is, right. it still gives you a mean to to evaluate that. 
Yeah, and so it's it's somewhat objective. It's not. I think. I think. What I noticed in church, I was raised in the church, and I don't know if you were, but I, I one of the things I realized it's really hard to get good, healthy feedback in churches at times. Yeah, you, you have to be very yeah. intentional about that, right? It can either be very toxic feedback where you're like, "Oh gosh, we don't, right. we don't want to read that comment card," or it can just be like lovey, joyful. Oh my gosh, brother, you did a great job, and you inspired me, and it, it didn't cause any traction with anybody else. But we're so afraid to be critical or to give evaluation. Yeah, I think you got to strike a balance there where it's like you don't want to be overly critical, but you also want you want it like. <laughs> I'll give you a personal illustration. I bombed one sermon at Rock Harbor. I just remember, just like, I mean, like, knew they're bombed, like, to the bomb could be bombed, you know? And uh, Mike and I, right after my sermon was done, I didn't even have time to go to the worship experience. Like, he called me into his office right after that sermon, and he gave me immediate feedback. Sure. He said, hey, he, he's like, you know that didn't go well. He's like, I don't have to convince you of that. I'm like, yeah, I know. I didn't go well. <laughs> but he said, okay, let's. You have two more services to do tomorrow. So it was a Saturday night service. I had three tomorrow. He's like, we didn't wait. We were immediately on it. So I think that type of, I think you learn quicker that way. Yeah, for and, sure. You know, being put in bigger environments. And, um, you know, I, I don't know, but I'm, I'm concerned that we're not raising up a next generation of young young communicators and leaders, yeah. you know. That's part of why and I'm so doing this, me, yeah. Right, right. I, I, I share that same concern and uh, with the secularization of, like, the millennial generation, and, and which I have deep concern about that as well. Um I think it's really a time for us not to focus so much on celebrity preachers, but really on equipping preachers. And I think that the true celebrity preachers of the future should be those who have raised up dozens and dozens of, of young Christian leaders who are yeah. doing the same thing. That should that. be the benchmark for me. Right. Well, uh, that's great. Thanks for, and that's, that's part of why I wanted to ask that question. Cause I've, yeah. I, there's been a few people who have addressed it and a few other people. I've had a few people just, email or you know comment and just say hey do you have good feedback for this so i'm trying to address it more uh do yeah. you have favorite like do you have favorite apps that are so helpful for you in sermon prep that you like to use or books that have been helpful for forming you anything like that you want to recommend yeah uh you know i use like evernote to like just yeah, uh, yeah. like you know to to grab content from um I think the iPhone has just saved uh, me so much time in terms of being able to like immediate, like I'm more of a, a brainstorming person, like not strategically structured as much, but I can be in the middle of a restaurant and see a commercial and, you know, oh my gosh, I got that. So Evernote helps me retain that content. Um, in terms of books that I've really, you know, uh, uh, is it Haddon Robinson's? book yeah i'm preaching but he also has an e-course that he did hmm. that you can get on christianbook.com on expository preaching i think it's 79 dollars, and i think it's just his class that he taught at the seminary he was at on expository preaching i think that was great um i watched a lot of youtube videos uh so for me it'll probably be more like youtube but tim keller has great the recent that he did three lectures on preaching Hmm. that were done at the Reformed Theological Seminary in Florida that are just like cash money. I mean, they're just, they're just fantastic. You found those on uh, YouTube? Yeah. So I just, you know, Tim Keller preaching or Tim Keller Reformed. He did yeah. three. three, And I, I th that was really, really good. I, I'm more interested right now. It's more my personal. I'm more interested in like how do we speak to a secular generation versus how do we construct really, you know, so right. I guess I'm not in a for formal 
time. I've kind of read all, you know, Tom Long's book and all those books in seminary. Right, right. But I think right now I'm really interested in listening to preachers who are effective in speaking to secular people and helping them understand the gospel. And I think people like Andy Stanley, obviously, I would say is a good person at that. Tim Keller, obviously, in his own way, is, is re- really good at that. Um, so I think that's kind of a, a place that I'll start. Mark Laberton, who's at Fuller yeah, Seminary, yeah. he's had written some stuff on, on preaching that I really like. Clayton Schmidt was my preaching professor at Fuller, and uh, he's written a book on, on that. So there's lots of good stuff out there. Uh, I kind of think the best way to to learn, though, is to just do. <laughs> you gotta, it's true. You gotta, it's true. Get, get moving. So I think inform yourself as much as you can. Be constantly learning. I mean, I'm just constantly – I mean – on my cell phone, there's not not very much music, but there's quite a bit of iTunes courses and yeah. you know lectures and things like that. Because I think you just got to kind of wash yourself with that all the way. You got to got to chew on it. So I'm always trying to to think through those. Uh, for me, if, the, where I'm looking through right now is, and if you have any sources to tell me, it's like, how do you preach ex- expository verse by verse in a way that um, secular people people who are post-Christian, because I think we're moving into a very post-Christian context. For sure. so that's kind yeah. of a concern, and I'm more of an evangelist. You know, so how, how do you do that? How do you bridge the faithfulness to Scripture in a world where the language of Scripture is totally lost, in a world where the value of the Bible is totally lost? Those are kind of the questions I'm looking at. So I kind of look at practitioners quite a bit, people who are really successful at doing that and, and try to try to gain as much as I can from them. Yeah. Uh, one person who I uh, interviewed before, Golly, probably a couple months ago, who addressed that really well is Bruxy Cavey. I don't know if you're familiar yeah. with Bruxy, but I've heard um, of him, yeah. I asked him that specific question, and he had a he had a pretty good answer to it that I won't even begin to try to rearticulate. But I'll, I'll go check out the podcast. So, so you mentioned earlier. I just want to get these down. We'll, we'll wrap up here. Uh, but you mentioned uh, alongside iTunes, you you mentioned Coursera and MOOCs. What are those? I'm not familiar with yeah, those. Yeah, well, MOOCs are like massive online educational courses. How do they spell um, that? M O O C MOOC, I believe. No, okay. M O It's like a, like an abbreviated term. Um, these are classes that are free that you can join in on. But like iTunes U for me specifically has so many great courses. Like Liberty yeah. has put out tons of courses. I even think HIO, uh, where our alma mater has some things on there. Fuller has things on there. But I would just go try to try to use all that stuff because you know I'm constantly moving. But the one thing I can do when I'm moving, whether it's driving or walking, is yeah. kind of have some voice going on in the background. You know, voices in my head. So I, I, I try to use that. I also, um, when it comes to like more like theology type stuff, you know, there's so many places where you can do like independent learning through, uh, or you could like get a course for free. And again, I try to listen as a, as a kind of like a pastor theologian wannabe. I try to listen to everybody on every side of the issue. So I, if, if when I'm studying the Hebrew Bible, you know, Yale has a free course in the Hebrew Bible. Now, it's going to make most evangelicals very uncomfortable yeah. at points. Uh, they need right? to be, right? But yeah, but yeah, totally. And and I think, you know, a broken clock's right twice a day. Like so even if even if some of the higher critical stuff scares you, there's probably some insights there that you can gain. At the same time, read people who are professing Christians who have a great view of the Old Testament. And there's obviously many of them. John Golden Gay was my Old Testament professor at Fuller. Very rigorous, faithful Christian man. So for me, like I, I think there's so much good stuff out there. You know, it's, I think we live in the age of information, so there's really no excuse to not have content. I think it's really the way that you get distributed to you, so you got to be really intentional about that. Where do you look? And um, but there's so many good things out there. iTunes U has been a great place for me. Podcast, 
obviously or there's lots yeah. of great podcasts out there too that that people are doing and uh you know even just listen to great sermons you know go go like i i try to listen to a lot of preachers the temptation to listen to a lot of preachers is that you just uh if you're not careful you find yourself kind of like saying what they say and just right. kind of go. yeah so i think you got to be very critical in that way but you know I try to get as much content as I can. Well, and the, I mean, the reality is people who are part of our congregations are pulling in things from all over the place, too. So the more that we're able to do that, the more that we're able to speak to some of the same things. And so. they're doing it the second you're preaching. Yeah, so true. The second I say, so I, so I, the second I say, oh, well, the word in Hebrew means Adam, and it means dust of the earth. You know, it used to be that the preachers were the ones who had the kind of like uh, towers of libraries and insights. And, you know, that's what kind of gave them their job. Um, we're not the experts anymore because we have a smartphone. So, you know, uh, I think the the point being now, I think that's good, by the way. Accountability is good because yeah. then we, you know, we're we're having to be more faithful because people can fact check us uh, on, on the moment. And people have. People have done that to me and others. And, and hey, I, I, why are you talking? I looked up this, you know, where where'd you get that article from? Or have you seen this article in response to that point that you made? And so it kind of sharpens you. You have to be kind of on top of things a little bit more. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, I have here, I'll give you a sec to talk to, about this. I have here your book that you oh, sent yeah, me a copy cool. of. Thank you. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. So that came out uh, about a year ago. and Trivial, Trivial Pursuits. Pursuits. Okay. Sorry. Trivial <laughs> I didn't Pursuits. say Why, <laughs> Yeah. I got to tag it. It's uh, with Baker Books, Trivial Pursuits, Why Your Real Life is More Than Media, Money, and the Pursuit of Happiness. And uh, for me, it, it was kind of uh, a book that bridged my time in education and some of the bigger questions I was asking about culture with some of like my pastoral experiences. So I think it's kind of a book that tries to look at the role of media, social media, uh, emerging technologies in our world, and how they're reshaping not only the questions we ask, but the framework in which we ask questions and the questions that we're even allowed to ask and, and which questions are appropriate. So for me, the book, I try to show that the millennial generation and the younger generation, you know, they're really going to have a different brain than the generations that came before them. And we see this with, you know, people who were not born in the technological generation needing help from their grandkids to work their phones and their computers, where at the same time, my six-year-old knows how to get on. I mean, she bought iMovies without asking me this <laughs> last week, you know, because somehow right. she was able to figure that out, right? So like, for me, the, the book tries to show some of the, the um, issues that that could raise in terms of our spiritual progress and uh, wisdom. I think one of the things, you know, spirituality and a life with God takes patience, and the world of technology is a world of immediate gratification. So I think one of the questions I ask is, how do we cultivate patience, spiritual formation, discipline in a world where I can get anything within two seconds on my iPhone? Or one of the chapters is called, My Status is Lonely. And I, and I look at the role of social media in reorienting our relational lives and raise the question is, does it, you know, it's, it's ironic, you know, we have thousands of people who know who we are now and follow us on Twitter and Facebook, yet feel more isolated and alone and inauthentic than any generation who's come before us. And just the ability to sustain real flesh and blood, real life relationships is really hard. I mean, you see whole families now at dinner. Uh, with their cell phones in hand, yeah. not even engaging in each other, right? Because they're 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 engaging this external world. So I try to look at like how the reality of our world's been kind of replaced with the Photoshop version, kind of a fake, kind of technological version. And what should the Christian response be in that world? And how should we live faithfully in that world? And uh, gave a good go at it. Gave my best to see to give some answers, and we'll see what God does with yeah, it. Yeah, great. 
Well, why don't you tell us, uh, for anybody who wants to keep up with what you're up to, your church's website, your Twitter, your personal website, if you have one, any of those. Yeah. So, yeah, my church is yccfamily.org. We're going to be going through a rebranding of our church. And so uh, we're processing what that looks like now because our, our footprint's a lot larger than Ukaipa now. We have people coming from Los Angeles even. You know, yeah. we have people coming from Arrieta, Temecula, Riverside. So so uh, we're in the process right now of dreaming what that could be and, you know, what could the revision. Right now it's yccfamily.org. My Twitter's Ian M. Diorio, at Ian M. Diorio. So if you just hit my name. Uh, that's me on Twitter. Uh, my website's iandiorio.org, and you can go buy the book on there, get information about what I'm up to. Um, praying about launching a blog, so maybe that will be happening, but we'll see uh, about what happens so, there. So those are kind of the main ways to get hold of me. Are you trying to say that somebody else got Ian Diorio on Twitter before you did? I think I did, but then I think I have like didn't know how to – like. I think I, I opened a Twitter <laughs> account like years ago, and then like – Forgot that I did, and I had to reopen another one or something. So, gotcha. Oh well, but <laughs> so, I, there can't be that many Ian Diorios out there, right? It's not, there's a law firm that their name is like Ian Diorio, like it's like one word. There you go. And it's like so when people Google me, you can you get me or you get like a law firm. So oh well. <laughs> so well, so, Ian, it's yeah, andiorio.org is a great way, and uh, love to talk to people. Like I love uh, to be connected to people. So you know, uh, find find my information, contact me. I'm always happy to respond. Yeah, we're all on the same team. We want to support each other. So Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Ian. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, man, I was so honored to do it. Praying for what you do. Appreciate the work that you're doing. I'm grateful to be part of it. Thank you, Ian, for making the time to join us. And thanks to all of you for listening. As always, you can find some of the books and resources and links that Ian mentioned uh, on the website at sermonsmith.com. This case would be sermonsmith.com slash Ian underscore Diorio. And, of course, you can always keep up with what we're up to on Twitter at SermonSmith or do a search for SermonSmith on Facebook. Thanks again.